Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. We've spent a year and a half examining the case against Robert Pape and Christian Smith. And in my opinion, they have been ruled out as suspects in the murders of Becky and Vicki Friedley and John Hayward. Aside from all of the many problems with the state's case against them, their wrongful convictions can be easily pointed out simply by looking at the earliest possible moment when Becky's body could have been ignited by the killers on the scene, 9.46 p.m., and coupling that with the 10.23 p.m. voicemail check connected to Tower 88, Sector 1 in the extreme north end of the valley. They simply could not be in two places at once. The mental gymnastics one has to jump through to even make an argument that there is an extreme outside possibility that they could have pulled that drive off doesn't even come close to a threshold that anyone should be comfortable with. They left in a car that no one saw as neighbors were converging on the crime scene. The fire trucks must have somehow missed them as they passed each other. And 17-year-old Christian, driving an Acura, with very little ground clearance, managed to make that drive in a time that the 2016 investigators, the ones that are trained to drive professionally, were never able to achieve in their multiple drive tests and took Bodmer nearly a dozen attempts to finally make it in almost enough time on a route that's been disproved by the cell phone records. And they would have had to have been at the extreme outside range of the time provided by Dr. Pope and then make that call to voicemail at the very second they crossed the Tower 88 coverage area while driving a route that doesn't make any sense in any reality. And all of that just to say that it's possible that they could have been there. In the real world, in all practicality, they are alibied. Christian and Robert did not commit these murders. Which leads us to the big question. If not them, who? This is Season 12, Episode 63, Neighbors. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I'm going to tell you right up front that I do not have the answer to that question. 
In a case like this, it's difficult to do much more than just identify people who may be suspected of the murders. And that's because we have no original investigation to draw from. It's not like in Adnan or Ed or Jesse or Jamie's cases where lots of other suspects were investigated and interviewed. The people that I'm going to be talking about today were never considered by police at all in this case. I can't tell you if they had alibis that night because no one ever asked. One of the biggest mistakes in this case, and this I hope is something that we can all agree on, is that the original investigators didn't go door to door in this tiny community and ask questions. Did you hear anything last night? Did you see anything? Do you have a security camera? Where were you last night? Is there anyone that can verify that? Did you see any cars driving around? Those questions should have been asked to every single resident, at least in the north section of Pinion Pines, which only amounts to a couple handfuls of homes. Even if you still believe Robert and Christian are guilty, surely you can agree that one way or another we probably wouldn't even be having this discussion if it had ever even occurred to Bump and Sarah or LeClaire in those early critical first hours that the offenders very well may live in the neighborhood. Or at the very least that the neighbors may have seen something. And you might say, well, if they knew something, they would have come forward. The problem with that type of thinking is that, well, for number one, that's not true. Not everyone will just call the police and share information, particularly in a community like this. And two, people don't know what's important and what's not. They don't know how their piece might fit into the greater puzzle. For example, let's say someone on Palm Canyon Drive saw a car driving north at around 8.30 p.m. Could be nothing, but in this community, it would be easy to find out if it was important. Pinion Pines is not on the way to anywhere. It takes an intentional trip to get there. So armed with that information, investigators could have spoken to everyone in every house north of the siding to find out if anyone saw the car or knew where it was heading. There are hundreds of scenarios that could have led to either narrowing down on who did this or at least who didn't do it. Unfortunately, that wasn't done. And it's not something that can be done now, 17 years later. It's not as though there's never been a neighborhood dispute in Pinion Pines. There were disputes going on this very day. And it's not even as though one of those disputes has never led to a murder. Remember the story about John Trapini? He was in a feud with a neighbor that jumped from informing police about a drug operation to burning down a house and ultimately ended in murder right there in Pinion Pines. The fact that Bumpensero, who was the lead investigator at this point, or LeClaire, who took over later, never even considered that the offender that they were looking for might just be right under their noses is mind-numbing. But they did at least take one very basic step. They pulled the records of 911 calls in the area from the day of the murders. And as it turns out, there were more than you might think in this sleepy little mountain community on a Sunday afternoon. In December of 2006, Detective LeClaire filed the following report. Quote, The purpose of this report is to incorporate the RSO data warehouse reports into the case file. I conducted an inquire into the data warehouse computer system 
regarding any calls for service or on-site activity pertaining to the Pinion Pines area that may be connected to this arson murder investigation. I conducted an inquiry into the local area in the week prior to this investigation and found four calls for service, including three calls on the day of the arson murder and one call two days prior to the arson murder. It appears at this time that none of the calls were related to this investigation. I conducted a second inquiry to include the Friedley House address of 68550 Alpine between the present date and September 2006 and found nothing related to this investigation. The data warehouse reports are attached here to excluding the report for this investigation. This case is ongoing. End quote. So what we have here is two and a half months after the murders, LeClaire thought it was a good idea to see if there were any other 911 calls to the area around the time of the murders. There are a few frustrating elements here for me. One, the fact that this wasn't done immediately. Two, the fact that he only looked for one week before the murders. And three, if I'm reading his report correctly, he pulled up calls for service at the crime scene address for the two months after the murders not before. He said he looked up the records, quote, between the present date, which would be December of 2006, and September of 2006. Now, I'm not a cop, and I don't pretend to be, but if it were me, I would have immediately searched for any 911 calls in the area for at least a month before the murders and a month after, just to get an idea of what kind of activity was going on up there. And I would have looked up all 911 calls to the Friedley House, ever just to see if there's anything that could provide some sort of insight into victimology. Understand that if John had called the police to report his neighbor threatened to kill him and burn his house down eight days before the murders, LeClaire would have no idea that happened, because he only looked back for a week. Now, I'm absolutely not claiming or even suggesting that that happened. The point is that we don't know if that happened, or if anything happened. I'm sure you're all already typing up your follow-up questions, can I get those records? The answer is no. The Riverside Sheriff's Department has shot down every attempt at an open records request, claiming that because Ron Friedley was a former employee, they didn't have to fulfill the request due to an exemption for incidents involving county employees. Even though Ron wasn't a county employee at the time of the crime, he didn't live there, he wasn't involved in this case at all. These are the four calls for service in the area that LeClaire found in his search, in the order that he arranged them in his report, which is actually backwards. The first 911 call listed came in at 7.02 p.m. on the night of the murders. At 7.02 p.m., an anonymous female called the police to report a party at the end of Juniper Road. For reference, Juniper Road is in the south section of Pinion Pines. If you look at a map, the neighborhood is kind of set up like two boxes slightly offset from one another. The Friedley House is in the center of the back line of the top box, and this party was on the east side of the bottom box. Hopefully that makes sense, but I'd highly suggest actually looking at a map for more clarity. As the crow flies, the party is about a mile and three quarters away from the Friedley House. The dispatch log says that the caller said that the party is at a known meth house and that if deputies go there, they're likely to make a large drug bust. The caller said that another agency, so not Riverside Sheriff's Department, had busted two people for drug possession near the location earlier that same day. We don't have records for that, though. No units were dispatched to the location until 7.55 p.m. 
and the first officer to arrive on the scene was none other than Jerry Osterloh. You'll recognize his name from earlier in the season. He helped investigate the crime scene, and he testified at trial. Osterloh arrived on the scene at 8.45 p.m. He was in Pinion Pines at 8.45 p.m. Most likely, he was there while the murders were taking place. We know that the killers were gone no earlier than 9.46 p.m., and before that, the murders had to happen, and the house was set on fire well before Becky's body was. So there's a real good chance the murders were taking place in progress at the time Osterloh was in the neighborhood. So Osterloh arrived on scene nearly two hours after the call came in and reported that there was no party. It's unclear if he actually went in and investigated or just drove by and determined nothing was going on. However, there's not much time for investigating here. He arrived on the scene at 8.45 and 22 seconds and reported that there is not a party or drugs 33 seconds later. He then cleared the scene eight seconds after that. The next call on the list came in at 5.30 p.m. on the day of the murders. This call actually has a full report attached to it, so I'll read it to you. I had heard rumors when I first started working on this case that someone was walking around Pinion threatening to burn the mountain down hours before the murders. Well, this is that report, and you'll see it's completely unrelated. This is Osterloh again. Quote, On September 17th at 5.30 p.m., I was dispatched a call from Fire Station 30 on Highway 74 near Palm Canyon Road. The call was referenced a white female walking around yelling at herself. At 5.37 p.m., Deputy Barba advised that he detained a female matching the description on Burlwood and Santa Rosa Road. This is about a half mile from the fire station. Deputy Barba received information from residents in the area that the female, I'm going to leave her name redacted here, was going door to door asking if she should set the mountain on fire. Deputy Barba asked her if she made the statements and she denied doing so. However, she removed a lighter from her bra and showed it to him. She asked Deputy Barba, quote, should I just light my hair on fire or just cut it off and bury it? I don't want anyone to steal my soul, end quote. Deputy Barba transported this woman to the Lake Hemet Mountain Station pending transport to ETS. I met Deputy Barba at the station and supervised her until AMR arrived to transport her. AMR arrived about 7.30 p.m. and took her to ETS. On the 18th, at about 4.50 p.m., I contacted ETS to see if she was still there, Reference a suspicious fire in the area on the 18th at about midnight 15. ETS notified me that she was still being detained. End quote. So yes, there was a woman walking around talking about burning the mountain down, but she was in custody at the time of the murders in Alpine. And also, an interesting side note, according to this report, at 15 minutes after midnight, on the night of the murders there was another suspicious fire somewhere up in Pinion that we've never heard about and still have no more information about. Now, this next one is a little more interesting. On the very afternoon of the murders, just a half mile away from the crime scene, police were called because of a threat of a triple homicide. At 4.34 p.m., Mike Watling called 911. These are the notes from the dispatch log. Reference neighbor Sidney Smith, 
50 years old, in front of location in teal blue Jeep Cherokee, drunk and threatened to kill Mike and the neighbor's kids, the Ellis's. Subject told Mike that he better call the cops because he was going to kill them. Unknown address that the Ellis's live at. Per Mike, the subject was drunk and driving. Sydney lives in Pinion, unknown location. Per Mike, the Ellis brothers are known burglary suspects, and Mr. Smith is upset with them for some reason. Unknown if subject has any weapons. Now, let me give you a little background. Sydney Smith lived on Chalet Drive, about a half mile southwest of the crime scene. The Ellis brothers are the other Ellis's that Jim Ellis mentioned in his 2015 interview. The Ellis's lived right next door to Sydney. As Jim Ellis said in his interview, the other Ellis's, Daniel, James, and Robert, are, well, they're not good guys. Listener Caroline has done a ton of research on them and has tracked down several newspaper articles regarding their criminal histories and has looked up their records. The list is long, really long. The three Ellis brothers and one of their sons have massive rap sheets. Most of their charges ranging from the 80s all the way up to last year revolve around drugs. Possession, possession with intent to sell, manufacturing, etc. It appears they were cooking meth and selling it, amongst other things. There were also charges for growing marijuana. On top of that, there are burglary charges, petty theft and grand theft charges, vandalism, possession of controlled substance while armed, and death threats. Sydney, on the other hand, has no criminal record. I found three contacts with police, all three revolving around driving, a speeding ticket, and driving without a license. So the point here isn't that Sidney Smith was threatening to kill people that day and maybe he instead decided to kill the whole family and burn the house down. Just want to make that clear. From what I can gather from these records, it seems like the Ellis brothers must have done him dirty somehow. And he got himself drunk and he was pissed. The police arrived up in the area at 5.10 p.m. They drove around looking for Sydney for 36 minutes and then closed out the call as unable to locate at 5.46 p.m. So what's the point, right? What does this have to do with our case? Well, maybe nothing. In fact, probably nothing. But it gives us a better idea of what was going on up in Pinion Pines just hours before the murders. And it also shed some light into the people who were nearby. Just down the road from our crime scene, we have a family of drug manufacturers slash dealers slash burglars, guys who have been caught with weapons, and it sounds like guys who possibly that very day did something to their neighbor, Sidney Smith. Again, I want to stress that I'm not drawing some grand conclusion out of this information, but I think it's info that's important and something that should have been followed up on. The Ellis brothers should have been questioned. Sidney should have been questioned. Mike should have been questioned. I've reached out to Sidney Smith, and he did call me back once but hung up as soon as I answered. And Mike Watling, the guy who called 911 about the incident, sadly passed away in 2013. He was a professor at the College of the Desert. The bottom line is that there was a family of, let's call them bad dudes, who apparently didn't have any qualms about doing something to the people in that neighborhood, and they weren't even questioned. In fact, LeClaire didn't even know about this incident until two months later. So let's recap the day of the murders. At 4.34 p.m., police were called because Sidney Smith was driving around threatening to kill the Ellis brothers and apparently the caller Mike Watling. At 5.30, police are called again about a woman going door-to-door asking if she should burn the mountain down. 
And at 7.02 p.m., police are called out because there was a party at a known meth house in the neighborhood. And again, Osserlo was out on that call until 8.46 p.m. Three times, three different incidents requiring police presence in Pinion Pines on the evening of the murders. And on one of those calls, Osterlo was in Pinion Pines, most likely during the murders. Three 911 calls hours before, and no one thought that it might be a good idea to canvas the neighborhood and interview the residents. two other dispatch logs in LeClaire's report. One was from Friday the 15th. This was a call for a bonfire on the side of Highway 74, and the responding officer was unable to locate it. Then the last one, I'm not quite sure it's included, is a report of a road rage incident from June of 2005, which doesn't even fit into the search criteria that LeClaire used. The only thing even remotely connected to our case is that the location says Alpine Way and Highway 243 which of course isn't Alpine Drive. I have no idea why this incident is included in the report. And at the bottom, it's handwritten. It says, 2005, unrelated call. Now, the last thing that I want to cover today is kind of a new development that's not so new. Months ago, I mentioned that Jackie Groshan, which may not ring a bell to you because I thought her name was pronounced Jackie Grosjean, uh, but it's French. So I talked about Jackie Grosjean, who was the closest neighbor to the Friedley house to the east and how she had been interviewed by police on the day after the murders. I never thought much about her interview and didn't focus on it at all. She basically said she was asleep when she heard trucks. She didn't see anything. But then when she heard trucks again, she looked outside and saw the fire. She then realized that the fire trucks were already on the scene and that must have been what she heard. But it just so happened that earlier this week, I was speaking with Caroline who helped do a lot of research on some of the residents in the neighborhood, we started chatting about Jackie's statement and the fact that her dogs were barking and her donkeys were baying and the fact that the first time she heard what she thought was a car pulling into her driveway, she immediately looked out the front of the house and there was nothing there. No headlights, no taillights, nothing. And then there was the timing. This occurred sometime just after 9.30 p.m., fire trucks didn't get on scene until 10 12 p.m i'm going to play her short interview for you here and then throw out some possibilities as to what could have been going on all right well let's try it right here i'm uh interviewing on the 18th of september and it's mm, 4 18 in the afternoon what's your name jackie jacqueline j-a-c-q-u-e-l-i-n-e Groshan, it's G-R-O-S-J-E-A-N. Groshan? Groshan, yeah. And what's your birthday? And where do you live? Right here? What's the address? Right here, 68720. I'm the next next door neighbor. Okay, you're the very next house. Very next house. Alpine, is this a street, drive, lane? Alpine Drive. Drive. And Pinion or Mountain Center? It's... We're technically pinion, but the mailing ad, it's called Mountain Center because that's within 30 miles of that post office. Gotcha. Okay. So your mail comes to the Mountain Center post office uh, before it's delivered here. I suppose most people. I work in Palm Desert and I have a P.O. box. 
Right. Because that's how it goes for most people. Some people have mailboxes at the end of the street, but people break into them. So, right. You know. They make secure ones. Yeah. That are pretty good. Yeah. I got one. It's hard to get into. Real hard. All right. Um, just start at the beginning. You you told somebody that you were over here yesterday or something. Okay. I'll just, start from the beginning. Well, just tell me how long, you, how long you, first of all, let me get some other stuff out of the way. How long have you lived here? I've lived here, it was a, a year in June. Okay. So okay. you lived here one year. One year. And before plus. that, I lived right around the corner here. Okay. For 10 years. All right. 10 years of yeah. in Pink. So, okay. yeah. 11, yeah. All right. And how long have you known the folks that live at that house? Okay. I have known them for, since I've moved here. I've known them actually for many years. Many, many years. But I have to tell you, you'd think because I'm your, the next door neighbor, I would know a lot about them. These people are recluse people. They don't go to parties. They rarely ever leave the yard. I mean, the only time I see them is leaving out of town and it's just a wave. Okay. You know, um, I honestly, I don't, I don't know them that well. They kind of stick to themselves. So you've known them for a long time, but you're not close. Exactly. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the detectives were asking me last night if I heard anything. I mean, I never, very rarely on a Saturday morning when there's no breeze, I can hear one at the end of the house and went yelling to each other, not at each other. Right. And I've heard their phone ring a couple of times, but never any yelling, never any fighting, okay. you know, nothing. Okay. Um, and so of what you do know of them, how many people live there? Three. And who are they? John. I don't know his last name. I always thought it was Freely. Okay. Vicki Freely and Rebecca Freely. Now there's another daughter, Drew. Rebecca's 19. Drew is 20, and Drew lives with Ron down in Lapita. Okay. Now, I got all this information from my the guy across the street. Okay. I called him in Catalina. He, okay. he knows them very well. We'll, get, we'll them. get to what someone else told you for, for now. Okay. Just tell me what you know. You know what I mean? Everything I told you is what he, okay. he told me. So prior to him telling you all that, who did you think lived here? Oh, I knew it was John, and I knew it was Vicky. I knew okay. their names. So you just knew them as I John knew their names, Vicky. exactly. Did you know their last name or no? I knew the Freelies, yeah. Okay. I knew the last name. So, but I always thought John was free. I didn't realize, I didn't know about Ron or anything like that until last night. Okay. Um, and so they live here with their daughter, and you said, okay, you didn't know about any other daughters. I didn't know about until any other daughters he until he okay. told me. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me, okay, so you're neighbors, but you don't deal with each other much. You don't talk, you hire, you wave high when they go by I or whatever. I talked to him last Saturday. I told him that my roommate moved out, and I'm all alone over there that I know he does handiwork, that I should get his number and he should get mine in case of emergencies. Because right. I have an alarm system on the house, but it'll take a cop 45 minutes to get here. Right. So I also wanted to know if the alarm system goes off. And he was like, great, nice, you know, and that was a week ago Saturday. I saw him right here at the end of the driveway with his dog, and that was the last, I mean, I haven't seen him since. Okay. And uh, what about Vicky? when was the last time we talked to her? I haven't seen her in months. Okay. As, as far as I know, she works at Robinson's Bay at night, right down here in the desert. Okay. He is a handyman, I know that. And he works for himself. He's retired and works for himself during the day. He's just doing odd-end jobs. Okay. That I know. Right. Okay. And uh, what about the daughter? You ever talked to her? No. And uh, does she have a car? Yes. An older, uh, probably about a seven, eight-year-old Honda. I'm not quite sure what color. It's an old Honda, but you don't know what color. Uh-uh. Like within 10 years old. Okay. You remember light, dark? Perfect. I don't remember. <clears throat> Is it a four door, do you know? I don't know. Okay. How do you know it's a Honda? I know it's a Honda because he told me. All right. He 
said he knew it was a Honda, and I said, is it white? And he said, no, it's not white, because I thought I had seen a white one. Well, what's his name, your neighbor? Steve is his first name, and I don't know his last name. He's Harpo the Clown. Like the Harpo the, the Clown? Har well, not the original Harpo, but yeah, the one in Palm Desert, the one with the billboards, yeah. Gotcha. Don't mention that to the media. <laughs> Why? I'll be waiting for him to come home. He's a huge celebrity. Right. <laughs> Okay, so Harpo the Clown knows them better, and he told you all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and he lives in that geodesic thing? Mm-hmm. He'll be home tomorrow night. Okay. He said he's in Catalina. He's in Catalina on a job, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so just tell me about yesterday, or okay. this morning, or... All right. Whenever, whenever something happened that caused you to come over here, or talk to somebody to come over okay. here, how'd you about, hear about it? I went to sleep stuff. around 9.30. I heard my dogs barking in a truck. And it sounded like it pulled in my driveway. So I ran to the front window. I, 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 my room's on the opposite side of the house. Is that your house, the white right there. roof? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Thanks. you live actually quite quite a ways away. Yeah, but the, all the houses are five acres. Right, yeah. but I mean... Yeah. So um, I wake up, I heard a truck. It sounded like it pulled in the driveway. So I, I ran directly to the opposite side of the house that faces this front so street. So were you sleeping at that point in time? No, I was... Borderline, fall, just to do it. Okay, off. so you're in bed. I just gone to bed at 9:30. Okay, you heard okay. the dogs barking. Thought a truck pulled into your yard. Or yeah, it sounded like it pulled right in the driveway, and I looked out the front, and I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see tail lights, nothing. So I thought, oh, maybe I imagined it. So I went back to bed. I heard the dogs barking again. Now at this point, I raised miniature donkeys. All the donkeys. Ah, ah, I heard them. I heard them earlier. Yeah. Well, no, they were all going nuts at the same time, and I hear like a stampede. My horses are going nuts, running past. So I look out, and I, I thought I heard another truck. I look out the front window and nothing. So I'm like, this is strange. So then all of a sudden I look out my side window, my front desk, and I just see the whole house completely engulfed. And I went, oh my gosh. So I ran to the phone to call the police. And then it, it just as I mean, the, the fire, as soon as I picked up the phone, it occurred to me that the two trucks that sounded like they pulled in my driveway were fire trucks. Gotcha. They were already here. Okay. So um, I ran down here. My first thing was going to, I was going to run to the, I didn't know if there were trucks here, but uh. I ran down here and I was gonna bang on the door and see if anybody was in there, right. but it was the far house was way too engulfed by then. Right. And apparently somebody had already done that. Okay. So the fire trucks were already we're here. We're all here and I sat out here <clears> in front <throat> with the dog, holding the dog the whole time, just watching the house burn. Answering questions. So you never even got up the driveway or nothing? No. They wouldn't okay. let me. By the time I got here the cops were all here. Fire department. Are there other neighbors that live in this neighborhood that or would be around or that know them better or that have kids? Rebecca or Oh yeah. They, I can give you I can, Do you have any kids at your house? No. Just you. Just me. Just me. I had a roommate for ten years and just moved to Oahu. Okay. But there are some kids lo local, teenage or twenties and anything? Yeah, there's some <clears throat> twenty year olds and stuff like that, but they don't hang out around here. They go down the hill, they go to school, they go you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. I'm just asking. Yeah. I don't know. No, no, no. I've been up uh -uh. here a day, so I don't know. Right, right. Not so many. Most of them are away at college and, you know, at that age. Okay. Um, so then you just hung on the dog. Yeah. And uh, off topic, are you planning on taking the dog to your house? Yeah. Both of them? Sure. Both of them. I didn't know there was a second one, but I yeah. I don't know if the other one will go with you or not. He's not happy. Well, when he he's gets hungry, he will. He'll right. come right here. When he sees his other dog right there, he'll come over. 
Okay, but the one dog, the brown, the dark brown one will go with you probably. If I pull him hard enough. Yeah, he, last night he wouldn't leave this house. He would not leave. This morning, they had lost the body. Even when they were done, him. they were trying to get into the... Uh, it's on the driveway. I saw it. Yeah, they couldn't thing. find it this morning. So, actually, the dog actually came with me, calling him to my driveway, looked up the driveway, turned around and ran back. And I didn't have any halter or anything to right. with. Yeah, that's... Uh, He's doing his job. He's staying at the house. He's just sitting in the driveway waiting for somebody to come out of the house or come home. It's kind of sad. What, um, so now you talk to Steve, Harpo the Clown. Uh-huh. Um, and you said he gave you a bunch of information. What did Steve tell you? Well, well, what happened was is I, I, they were asking me questions down here. Okay, are the two kids her kids or his kids? What's his last name? Who's How old are the question? kids? All the cops. Oh, okay. Five, six different cops asked me the same questions over and over again. Um, so what I did was I ran home and I called Harpo on his cell phone because I know he knows them very well. Right. And I asked him. I wrote down all the questions they asked me. I came back and told him. Okay, right. the two kids are her kids. They're 19 and 20. This is their names. The one lives in La Quinta. That's how I found out. Because they wouldn't know how many people were in the house. Right. So, okay. I wish, you know, I pride myself in at, at not being a nosy person. I'm a very private person. Most people that live up here are. We don't care what other people are doing. We don't really, you know. But I'm, it's not that I'm not observant or, you know what I mean? But I'm really rather embarrassed right now that I, they're my next-door neighbors, and I could, I, I'll probably be able to tell you as little about them as maybe some of these other people. It's just that I'm just, you know... For emergencies, I say hi, you know what I mean? There's really no... Sure. That's why you live out here. Yeah, you know? Doing your own thing. Sure. I understand. Exactly. But I know they were very nice and very quiet. Never heard them. So does Steve give you the impression that he comes over here and eats sometimes? Do they barbecue or they hang out together every mm -mm, mm -mm. He's just lived here. They've been neighbors <clears throat> for 10 years. Okay. You know, and this guy's a hand, he was a handyman, so he would do odd end jo jobs and okay. stuff that, you know. So he just knows them somewhat yeah, better than you Yeah, he's a contractor, right. John. So, right. um, you know, yeah, he, you know, little odd and end jobs that you can't do yourself, electrical things and stuff, he'd come over and do. Right. Very good. Okay. Um... I can't think of anything else at the moment. Um, let me get your phone number in case I do yeah. have a question. Okay. I wish yeah. there could be more help. I really do. That's okay. You never know. If you see something or if people come by that don't that, that are asking questions that shouldn't be, I mean, not, not the media. I mean, right. I mean, just, like, just like people. Uh -huh. Random people that you don't know right. that aren't, say, that don't go high from the press enterprise or whatever. Start asking questions. Just pay attention to who they are. Maybe get a plate if they come. Of course. If they come to your house, type of thing. Well, sure. Now uh, I'll be you know. Sure. All right. And Jackie's interview raises some interesting questions, and I'm very interested to hear what all of you think. In the meantime, I'll share some of my thoughts. First of all, the timing. She said she went to bed at 9.30, and the dog barking started shortly after. She said she wasn't asleep yet, but was kind of drifting off to sleep. Now, let's look at some times that we've been working with. 
The first call, according to Captain Williams, came into the fire station at about 9.40. He said that three calls came in one right after another, starting at that point, until they headed out to the trucks to get en route to the scene. By the time they were dispatched, as a result of the other residents that called 911 rather than the fire department directly, they were already en route. So by 9.40 p.m., the house fire was visible. It had breached the window in Becky's room. The earliest that the killers could have left the scene was 9.46, which is the earliest that Becky's body could have been lit on fire. Tim Summerlee says he saw the fire in the peak of the house at around 9.45. He had his wife call 911, then they got out into their car and they drove up to the scene. At about the same time, Barbara Wright was headed west on Alpine from the east side of the neighborhood from Jeroboa, facing the crime scene, headed towards her house. Tim, his wife, and Jim Ellis arrived on the scene sometime between 9.50 and 9.55. Tim and Jim would not have driven by Jackie's house. Their route was up Chillin Heights and then left on Alpine. Jackie's house was to the right of Chillin Heights, over just to the west of St. Bernard Street. Barbara wouldn't have driven past her house either. She came from the east on Alpine and turned south on St. Bernard before she got to Jackie's. So here's the mystery... At the time Jackie heard what she thought could be a vehicle pulling into her driveway, Barbara, Jim, Tim, Tim's wife, and whoever the other people were that called the fire department were all focusing on the crime scene. And as I've mentioned a thousand times, none of them reported seeing any vehicles leaving the scene. So what could Jackie have heard? What could have riled her dogs up and more interestingly, her donkeys and her horses? Jackie assumed it was the fire trucks that she heard, but that's not possible. The fire trucks didn't arrive on scene until 10:12 p.m. and they came from the other direction. There's just no way they would have missed the driveway and had to go past it and turn around in her driveway. Tim Summerlee was waiting out at the road to direct them in, and to be honest, he couldn't miss the fire. It was a huge fire by that point. Now Jackie says that by the time she got up the second time and headed down to the scene, the fire trucks were already there, and that's why she assumed that it was the trucks that she heard pulling into her driveway. Adding to the mystery, she immediately jumped out of bed and went to look out the front window and saw nothing. No taillights, no headlights, nothing. She was so perplexed by this that she thought she must have imagined the sound. So this is what I'm thinking. And first of all, yes, I'm aware that there will be folks who are going to say that this is proof that a car did leave the scene, but I disagree. No one, including Jackie, saw a car. She heard what she thought was a car in her driveway, but when she looked out there, there was nothing there. So here's a hypothesis to ponder this week. Jackie heard what she thought was a car pulling into her driveway. Why did she think it was in her driveway? My assumption, and admittedly it's an assumption, is that it's because it sounded very close, not out on the road. Her house sits 200 feet back off the road, and her bedroom is in the back of the house. She panicked and jumped up because the sound was very close. She questioned her own reality, saying that she thought she must have imagined it because, as I've been saying, you can't miss a car driving up there at night. But what if what she heard, a vehicle that sounded so close she thought it must be in her driveway, wasn't in the front of her house? What if it was behind the house? I've been saying for months that a car on the road leaving the scene would stand out like a sore thumb. I concluded that it couldn't be Robert and Christian because they would have been driving out of the driveway and traveling at an extreme high rate of speed right when everyone was looking at the house. 
In order to make the time that Bodmer made, their car would have been driving very fast right from the get-go. Not something you can do in a dark neighborhood with no streetlights without headlights. But what if the killers weren't moving fast at all? What if they were moving very slowly? And what if they weren't on the road at all, but escaped to the east through the desert behind the house? Right behind Jackie's house. If you go a little further to the east on the map, you'll see the Jeroboa Road extends to the north of Alpine Drive for about 100 feet, and then it dead ends into a series of trails that go out into the desert. A perfect secluded place to park a getaway car, or even drive through the desert to the crime scene in a truck or even an SUV. I want to be clear that I'm certainly not suggesting that this is proof of what happened, but I do want to have a conversation about the possibility. Would the dog and donkeys and horses go nuts over a car driving down the road? I have some aerial images that I posted on our website for reference, and I can tell you from personal experience that you can't see Jackie's house from the crime scene. Probably could from the upstairs window, but not from the ground. Would the fire 300 yards away spook the animals? I don't think they could have even seen it from their corral. All things that we need to discuss in this week's Friday follow-up. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. 
I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.